Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Hector Correa is a business consultant and technology professional with 20 plus years of experience in designing and managing the implementation of technical solutions in industries as diverse as utility providers, banking, marketing, retail, beverage, government, and construction. He works with CXOs from the US, Canada, and Mexico to help them find new opportunities, expand to new markets, and tackle the challenges of multinational business environments. During his consulting career, Hector has had the privilege of working with some of the most important companies in the U.S. and Latin America, such as Grupo FEMSA, Walmart, Kraft Foods, Banorte, Tyson Foods, and Sara Lee, just to name a few. He has extensive technology and business experience that includes designing technology solutions for financial organizations, coordinating the implementation of company-wide ERP systems, managing EAI and BPM implementations, and leading technology information initiatives for large organizations in both private and public sectors. He holds a Master of Science in Computer Science from the State University of New York, and he's a Fulbright Scholar. In his spare time, he works with nonprofit organizations in Mexico and the United States to create educational opportunities for young students from disadvantaged communities, Hector, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Hector, we're glad to have you with us. You have an educational background largely in computer science, so we'd love to know initially what inspired you to go from that into the consulting world. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a person that gets easily bored, and, and, and I explain what that led me to consulting, you know, uh, um, out of school, when I finished my undergrad and my master's, um, in between those two periods, I had a chance to work for Motorola. This was, you know, a long time ago. And, um, you know, I quickly learned that I, I needed to jump into areas where I would have constant challenges and learn about constantly new things. So when I finished my graduate degree, when I finished my master's, I had the opportunity to go uh, into a technology consulting firm. And, and that was wonderful because it allows me to, you know, have a project in uh, retail and then have a client that is in finance and then have a client that is in consumer packaged goods. So even though I gravitated around the technology space uh, a lot in, because of my education, it allowed me to jump into very different business verticals and learn about 
you know, processes, uh, problems, and uh, the, the way uh, business is done in many different areas. So that's what inspired me to go into consulting. I, I, I'm that kind of person that needs to start learning, to keep learning new things uh, every, every time that I go into a project with a client. Hector, you serve clients in a wide variety of industries, and I'm curious about how those uh, different clients differ from one another, but also perhaps in which ways are they similar? Always eager to compare notes with those who have the opportunity, like we do, to work with, with clients uh, that represent various industries. So I'd love to hear your, your insight into that. Yes, absolutely. You know, it is really fascinating. And, and I've always been, ever since I can remember, you know, in college and in my professional career, I've always been fascinated about, you know, how people have different points of view, how different industries, you know, define themselves and, and how clients actually define their problems when you're, when you're first engaging with clients in different industries. You know, it's very interesting how Clients in different industries define their problems, whether whether it's related to technology or not. Because over over the course of, of my professional development, you know, I started very heavily in technology, but then we started, you know, uh, I started growing into roles that will require more business understanding and and also, you know, dealing more with business problems that technology could solve. But at the same time, you know, growing into that space also gives you a different perspective. So to, to answer your question, you know, um, what have I found about consulting that is the same or different in the clients that I serve? Well, um, I would like to say that uh, some of the commonalities in the different industries that I've worked, uh, in the different clients that I've worked with, is that uh, there is always a tendency to think that technology is the solution for for uh, the problems that they're facing. When you go as a consultant, you engage with a client and say, I have this problem and I need technology to solve it. Well, you know, that's pretty much the, the first thing that they, they expect you to do is say, okay, well, let me take a look at what technology works best for you. But what we do is not just try to understand how, you know, take the problem as it's stated by your client and then just try to implement the solution, but actually dig deeper into the source of the problem. Uh, and in most cases, and this, and we have seen this over and over again, all across industries, in many times, um, there is a deeper problem. There is a, a, a process, a business process, or there is the way they do things. You know, it's, it's just been around since 50 years ago when technology was not available and, and they're just carrying inefficiencies or they're carrying business processes that are not suited for their, for the reality now. And they think that technology is going to solve that. Uh, in, uh, in some cases it does. Technology actually does give them a solution, but in many cases it is a combination of both. You need to fix a business process at the same time that you implement technology to make it more efficient. And, uh, and I, I see that that's a pattern that you can see in finance, that you see in retail, that you see in uh, construction, you see in energy and, and the public sector. Well, you know, that's, that's even more common to when you go into public sector and think that you will just implement this technology and things will, will just work smoothly. So that is what, what I think, uh, 
it's it's common that we tend to see technology as the solution to the problem, but most times it it, it also requires a uh, adjustment or analysis of their current process, their current business process, in order to find actually a solution that is not to backfire. Because in some cases, when you don't do that, well, you're just automating chaos, right? If the business process is broken and you just make it faster, then you're just going to have to deal with problems uh, a lot faster than, than, than without technology. Um, and, and what is different, you know, in, in the clients? Well, there are certain industries that I've seen that are more uh, proactive to uh, implement uh, technology solutions. Uh, other industries are a little more adverse to changes. Um, and, and then, you know, the process of implementing a solution, uh, it, it, it does require a lot more of change management. Uh, the perfect example will be government, uh, not because of government itself, just because there's a lot of sometimes a lot of regulatory restrictions or constraints. There's union constraints. So when engaging in clients with the pub in the public sector, there is a lot, res a lot more resistance, uh, to implementing new technologies or, or new business processes or, or change in itself. Just because of the structure of how the government works, not because the people in government are, are you know, are, are themselves uh, resistant, uh, resisting change. Just because of the structure, the, the, the way the government works. Um, private sector is usually more um, friendly to accept change, um, but it also depends on some industries. The construction industry is very adverse to change in general, not just in, you know any particular client or so, but uh, construction industry, medical, in the medical field is also very adverse to change when it comes, when, when we're talking about technologies that are not actually uh, facing the patient. Uh, any administration solution, uh, administrative solution that you want to bring into a, into the, the healthcare or, or the medical space, Usually, it's a little. There's a little bit more work to do to be successful in change management. Um, that's what I, in general, right? Um, it, it doesn't mean that I, I don't want to generalize these industries, but from an ex, from more than twenty years working in, in many different areas, that's that's what I've seen. Yeah, it's very interesting how you describe it. The technology is only one component of your work, and it, I assume that at some on some jobs, it's probably the easiest part of what you've been asked to do and because the clients have asked you to come in and, and help them wanting you to focus on technology and, and you see broader systemic issues that need to be addressed. I can imagine that you get a bit of resistance when you're, when you're doing that. So let's turn to Mexico. Uh, we'd love to hear what are some of the advantages for companies that decide to set up operations in Mexico opportunities, some of the difficulties they may face and how you help them navigate around these obstacles. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, some some of the opportunities or advantages are are, are have been repeated in uh, in many different forms. So I'll, I'll just be brief about those, right? Uh, whether you're talking about you know production, if you want to send a production plan to Mexico, or if you want to outsource some of your business processes to Mexico, uh, or or you want to have a division, uh, whether it's a design division, a technology division from your company operate in Mexico. Some of, some of the most common advantages that you hear 
is well, you know, it's of course the the price, right? Uh, salaries are lower in Mexico, and uh, therefore, you know, you have a, a team of people doing the same work in Mexico is much much more cost efficient than it is in the United States. So, you know, that that is uh, an advantage that almost anyone who uh, is in this business space will mention. Uh, time zone is also another one. Um, if you have a an office in New York and uh, you know you have and you have a plant in uh, Mexicali, which is on the opposite side, you're still dealing with the same time zone divisions as you do in the U.S., right? East Coast versus West Coast, or and if uh, in most cases you are only about an hour difference from your location uh, in Mexico. Um, but I, I will actually like to emphasize one that across uh, my experience uh, is usually is always mentioned, but I don't think is usually understood or or um, quantified properly, which is the the cultural similarities between Mexico and the United States. Um, over the years, I've had a chance to work as a consultant and also as a client with teams from many different places, uh, China, India, uh, Brazil, uh, Argentina, and Mexico, and, and Canada. And uh, we always tend to minimize the cultural differences between your home office in the United States and the other location where you're trying to outsource operations. Uh, but it, at the end, it turns out that it, it can have a very big impact on how your you know your your the work is performed and and this is where i like to emphasize that there's a lot of affinity in mexico uh maquiladoras have existed in mexico since the 1960s late 1960s early 1970s so we've had about 60 50 years or more of uh, a head start from compared to other locations in working with American companies, uh, working under the managerial style of the United States, you know, uh, their, their quality standards, the, the way they do business. So that is one of the advantages that companies, you know, sometimes say, Oh, yeah, yeah, but you know, I can, I can work with guys in India. They speak English. Yes, they do, but their culture is very different, very, very different. And once, and once you, you start trying to get that rhythm in 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 your daily business life and uh, try to work with people in uh, other countries that sometimes is a bigger obstacle than you anticipate in the beginning right um same same can be said about china and south america um that is a subtle difference but it has a great impact so those, those those are the, the most common advantages, that, uh, you know, for companies that want to set up operations in Mexico. The difficulties, um, well, trying to navigate the legal and financial system in Mexico. Um, it, from the legal standpoint, you know, Mexico as a country has, by federal law, uh, many uh, uh, benefits that you have to provide your employees if you hire hire them directly. Uh, in Mexico. So if you open an office in Mexico and you set up a legal entity in Mexico, well, you have to deal with, uh, you know, some, uh, benefits that you have to provide your, your employees by federal mandate that 
you are not used to uh, in the United States. Uh, the the fiscal system, the, the the way you report taxes, the way you pay taxes is is a little little different. Those are uh, difficulties I think that you may face, but you know nothing that you cannot overcome with the right partner or the right counsel in in Mexico. And and there's many many firms and there's many uh, groups in Mexico that that are experts at doing that. I think I would I would say in general those are some of the difficulties that people face. Uh, the other difficulties are more you know perception. Uh, sometimes we have a vision of Mexico that is not accurate. But you know those um, we always like to uh, attack those um, uh, conceptions, those, those visions of of Mexico in a very effective way by you know bringing people over to Mexico and show them, you know, what, what they're going to be facing, uh, which is mostly favorable. Uh, but we, we, we try to, you know, build a bridge to have them see directly, uh, you know, what is, what it's like in the technology centers and the technology, um, locations that, that are in Mexico and not just technology, you know, it's also industrial uh, production or, or any other business area. Would you say that it's easier for certain companies in certain industries and others to expand into Mexico or, uh, or is it more on a company by company basis on how adaptable they can be and, and willing, you know, op- open-minded to uh, the way business is done in Mexico? Well, there are certain industries that are, uh, that is a lot easier for them. Um, for example, you know, automotive and aerospace, right? The automotive industry has had a presence in Mexico for decades. So, um, if you are a supplier in the automotive industry and you want to outsource part of your operation to Mexico, well, you know, there is already a long, uh, uh, list of resources and, and groups and, uh, offices that, w- that will help you set up an operation in that, in that industry. Uh, aerospace, medical devices, you know, those are also industries where there's a big presence already in Mexico. So, you know, let's say that the recipe is already written for you. If you are in those industries and you want to come into Mexico and set up an operation here, there are others that are uh, not as common. Uh, you know, uh, for example, some, some uh, financial industries may have some difficulties setting in Mexico, especially because of, you know, uh, recent, uh, legislation changes in Mexico. Um, and so in, in that sense, yes, there are some industries, some market segments, some business areas, which do have a little bit of an advantage just because there's already a very uh, solid ecosystem that support their activities, right? And as, as, as companies themselves, now if we go down to the company level, you know, uh, some companies, uh, just by the, the way they've done business, you know, they are already probably doing, uh, having uh, outsource operations in other parts of the world. So for them, of course, the transition, if you already have a plant in China or Pakistan, uh, Thailand or the Philippines, and then you just want to move another area or open a new production line in Mexico, well, you know, you're ready, your business culture, your your internal culture in the company is already uh, 
prepare right for for the an outsource uh, outsource a, a part of your operations to Mexico. Other companies are very um, local or, or national, meaning that they maintain their operations in the U.S. So for them to take that first step into not just Mexico but anywhere outside of the U.S., take that big step of setting up an operation outside of the U.S., then it will logically be you know more difficult from the cultural perspective inside the company. But um, nowadays, you know, and especially after COVID, a lot of those barriers have been um, demolished. Uh, you know, there was a lot of resistance from many companies about even people working remotely, whether it was in the U.S. or abroad. But, you know, last year has proven that, well, it was more of a preference rather than a real limitation uh, that many companies face, you know, from people working outside of their office space. Hector, I just want to highlight one thing you mentioned. That's the cultural similarities. I think that is, in order to really appreciate how much of a factor that is, and 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 specifically how similar the the cultures are between Mexico and the U.S., you you do need right that experience of of having worked in other places, having conversations with business persons who are looking at Mexico now. You sometimes see that. It's almost as if they had a revelation at times where they realized that it doesn't have to be that difficult, right? I mean, maybe for for a couple of decades, they've been working in, in markets like China. Maybe they've been in, in other places in, in Asia. They just assumed that, that there were going to be all these difficulties present that in many cases don't really have to be present. And I think that that's part of what they're finding when when they go to Mexico and they realize, you know, there are issues that we have to deal with, but there are a lot of things that are not a problem anymore. I do want to go back to some of these perceptions that you talked about. And, and, and these are concerns that come up, right? This is a very typical conversation we have with clients. Just like, yeah, there's a lot of things that attract me about Mexico. It, it, it would be a great place from one perspective. Maybe we can dig a little deeper into this and maybe we can take advantage of, of this opportunity here to, to address um, some of those issues. I know, for example, that issues of, of safety are, are a concern for many people. And I have looked at, at some of the information and, and I, I try to explain to people that I talk to that, as you mentioned, that the perception might not be correct, but why don't we take it a, a bit a bit further and, and maybe you could speak to that. I mean, for a foreign company going to Mexico, setting up operations there, uh, taking into account the different places that they could go to within Mexico, how much of a concern is there in reality? How much of it is just hype and exaggeration uh, on the part of the press? Is it possible for a foreign company to appropriately manage those issues if they choose the right place in Mexico and they have the right policies in place? First, you know, thanks for going a little deeper into that particular topic, which I think is very important. And sometimes we just, you know, stay on the surface. Um, so, you know, before I go into the, uh, the issue of specifically about safety, um, I would like to just very briefly mention other things that you know, many companies in the United States don't realize how important that is. And I want to take the example of a manufacturing company, right? Uh, I don't think there's any place in Mexico where uh, you will not find people 
experts in quality assurance methods, whether you call that Six Sigma, uh, you know, uh, just in time, uh, all of those things, uh, you know, and, and I'm not just, just talking, you know, at the managerial level, but, you know, the, all those quality measures, all those quality systems, um, and, and, and all the culture that you need to create in your workforce to support all those operations that result in quality. Uh, you know, f- for, uh, in the Mexican business environment, that is or, or daily bread, right? That, that, that's, that's our bread and butter. Um, you won't find a location in Mexico where you, you will struggle to find personnel that is, uh, that is familiar with that. I mean, there is no place in Mexico where people are not familiar with any of those standards that many people in the manufacturing space expect. Uh, I don't know uh, how easy that is in other places, but what I, I do can tell you is that because of the maquiladora industry presence in Mexico since the late 60s, that is, is part of our culture right now, right? You don't have to uh, uh, deal with any uh, or, or anticipate that you will need to invest in training or that you will need to invest in your workforce to meet your quality standards. It's, it's a given. Uh, and that just that particular aspect, I think, especially when it comes to manufacturing, well, can make a big difference between your efficiency uh, in a production location in Mexico versus on, another country. Now, going into the, the, the topic of uh, security. Uh, well, yes, you know, there, there, there are some, there, there's been a change in the country in the last 20 years, maybe a little bit more. There's, there's, an, there is an increase in, um, in, in the, the violence that you see on TV. Um, I guess the misconception, and you know, uh, this is a topic that I also have to address with my clients on a constant basis. Since, you know, uh, I started in the consulting business in the early 2000s, um, but. It, it is interesting to know that even with the statistics that we have had in Mexico during the last few years, when you when you look at the um, violent events per capita, Mexico is still the safest country in Latin America. There is a higher there is a higher rate of uh, violence in Colombia, even though nobody talks about Colombia violence anymore, but I mean, just because it is news cycle expired, it doesn't mean that the violence in Colombia has disappeared. Colombia is a more violent country when it comes to, to those numbers than Mexico or you know, Chile, Argentina, Brazil. And my God, Brazil is, is times uh, uh, more than, than what we experience in Mexico. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the, what we see is just the total numbers. We don't see, and, and I can relate this to COVID, you know, that the, the way that information was presented during this pandemic, we get, we get the big numbers, right? We, this is the total number of deaths. This is the total number of uh, violent events in, in Mexico or in this place or in that place. But, when you start making comparisons and when you start taking into account the numbers, the percentages per capita, it gives you a little a different perspective. I mean, that's not to say that there is not a problem in Mexico, 
But it's also another thing that people don't realize is that these, uh, these events happen in very specific places. Uh, there's about two or three places where 95% of these, uh, you know, violent events take place. Um, and the rest of the country, it's, it doesn't, it's not affected by them for the most part. So there, there needs to be more done from uh, the Mexican side to clear the air, you know, clear the smoke from that so that the real numbers are presented. But um, I also, it's our job as consultants to work with our clients and explain, you know, well, yes, there, there's these hotspots, as it happens in almost any country, there's, there's hotspots. Like, I wouldn't like to be in the south side of Chicago after 5 p.m. on any given day of the year, you know. Uh, that's, uh, I, I lived in Chicago for more than 20 years. Um, but there's also very nice places in Chicago where, where you can, you know, go and visit without an issue. So it, it is part of our job to clear the air in that regard and say, well, if you're looking to set up this operation, well, not only this is a place where you won't have any safety issues, but also this is a place where you will find the right talent. You can establish, you know, uh, alliances with local universities if you need, you know, professional talent, you need college graduates, um, or if you need a skilled workforce. Uh, you know, if you're looking for hundreds of, of employees that are very familiar with this type of process, that is our job as consultants to take them in the right direction and find the perfect spot for their needs. Hector, that's a great explanation. I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, context matters, of course, in, in every global environment. And certainly, uh, you know, within the United States, there are parts of China where where we also would not necessarily like to be at any given point in time. So it depends on where you are, understanding the, the market and having having someone who understands those nuances. That's exactly where the value, the value you bring to your clients. So I'm very curious about your work with technology and film. A lot of your work uh, has been in that space. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, uh, especially what's unique in the Mexican market regarding technology and film industries? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, it was, this was kind of a coincidence because uh, as you can see, my background, my education is on, on technology, but you know, uh, the, the film industry, what, and what they call the creative, the creative industries. Well, now there's this strong merge between technology and the film industry or creative industries, whether you call it, you know, uh, film editing or, uh, rendering or post-production, pre-production. So this happened in my, in my case, it happened by, by coincidence. Um, I was not, uh, up to five years ago, I was not very familiar with the film industry in Mexico. My main work was with you know, more traditional areas of technology, whether it's artificial intelligence, big data analysis. But it happened that about five years ago, um, uh, an employee of the government of the state of Jalisco reached out to me. Uh, we met previously in an entrepreneurial event in Mexico City. And, uh, you know, she, we met, she knew what I, what I, uh, what I was doing in Chicago. And a couple of weeks later, she called and said, look, we want to organize a, a, a trip of, um, some Mexican uh, companies that are in the creative space. And she called it, she called them creative industries. Uh, they're in the creative industries and, you know, they have a very interesting offering and would like you to help us organize a visit. They will, this uh, group of companies were uh, traveling with the 
as uh, governor of the state of Jalisco. And I said, yeah, I'll be, I'll be happy to help. Uh, you know, I made use of or my network and we started creating an agenda. So that's when I realized that there are a lot of, uh, small companies that are, even though they're small in size, they're very talented and they have worked, uh, first with the effort of resurrecting the film industry in Mexico. Um, in the United States, maybe this wasn't very obvious, but back in the 1930s and 1940s, 50s and 60s, Mexico was the Hollywood of Latin America. You know, 95% of all the films back in those decades came from Mexico and they were exported to the rest of Latin America. So there was, uh, it died out in the 70s, 60, late 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, because the investment wasn't there, but there is a very, uh, there, there's a large group of small companies that are resurrecting Mexican cinema. And in their efforts, well, they are, you know, they're cashing up with all of the technology that is used in Hollywood for animation, for, uh, post-production, pre-production, sound editing, sound mixing, and, Slowly, they've been able to catch attention of, you know, big names in the United States, like Netflix and Amazon. Uh, some of the studios have done some small uh, projects with Mexican companies, especially for pre-production and post-production. So I didn't, I was, I was new to that world uh, about five years ago. But then after a successful event with the, the companies, uh, went to Chicago and they had successful meetings with some other, um, local companies in, in the Midwest that I started getting more involved in this, in this business. And, you know, we've been, a, I've been able to work with some of these companies in finding them opportunities to do some filming work in, uh, in Europe, in the United States. Um, and, and, but it still is, is a, it's, uh, there's a lot of, you know, work to be done. I think that uh, as successful as these small companies have been in reaching out outside of the Mexican border and have projects, there is still uh, not a lot of um, awareness in the film industry, in the big film industry in uh, Hollywood of these opportunities. But I think that, you know, that is also uh, a very fertile work, uh, fertile, you know, land for us. Uh, I think that uh, we have uh, a substantial base of companies and, and with very diverse products that we can, if we do some woodwork in marketing their abilities and their capabilities, we can catch more attention from the big names and the big studios in Hollywood. Well, Hector, thank you very much for all your insight. Really enjoyed this conversation, really enjoyed in particular talking about Mexico, which is definitely a market that I find of interest. I'm sure Jonathan feels the same way and pretty much every every one of us at the, at the firm feels that way about it. Before we end today, however, I'd like to uh, take this opportunity to ask you for any recommendations you might have for us, uh, whether it's something you've, you've read recently or something you've, you've watched or any recommendation at all you might have. We'll be happy to, to receive it. Thank you. You know, it's, uh, yes, I, I like to take this opportunity. Um, and, and this is, see, I work with entrepreneurs a lot, um, on both sides of the border in the U S and Mexico. And, you know, what I said in, in your first question, when in part of my response was that when some companies call you, 
you know, they think that technology will give them the answer that they're looking for in order to be more efficient or to have less quality issues or, or whatnot. Um, and then it turns out that, well, it's not just technology that you need in order to solve your problems. So on that same line, uh, when I was in, when, when I was in my master's program in New York, I had the fortune to take a class with, uh, it was a system science class. So it was, it was a little bit out of my comfort zone in computer science. This was more like an industrial engineering kind of class, but I always found industrial engineering also fascinating. So I took this class in system science and the, my professor was also the author of a book, a very small book. And, uh, this is, Usually, uh, you know, I recommend this to everyone who is an engineer in any field, but the more that I started working with people in other different areas, whether it's marketing or finance or construction, the more I saw that this little book is applicable to almost anyone. And it's a book called Are Your Lights On? I will strongly recommend anyone to read that little book. And uh, I will, without, you know, uh, I'm not going to spoil the content of the book, but it, it is a very fresh and unique look at how we, especially engineers, but in general, how we people solve problems or try to solve a problem. And then, most times, uh, or, or many times, we end up creating more problems with our quote unquote solution than the ones we originally had. Or, or we create, you know, problems that we didn't anticipate. Uh, so this book, it colored your lights on. Uh, I would strongly recommend that to anyone. And this is just more on a, on a personal, you know, on a personal note. I think it's a fantastic book. I, I have three children. Uh, one is, uh, 22. Another one is 19. And I have a girl that is 17. I, I've already made them read that book twice, one by themselves and another one. We were reading it all together. Uh, we will sit every afternoon and, and read, you know, a chapter or, or half a chapter and then talk about it amongst ourselves. Uh, because I think that it's, it, it gives you a very, um, different way to approach how do you analyze a problem and how do you come up with solutions. And, uh, some of those things are, uh, uh, understanding how that thinking process is some, is many times flawed. I think it helps, it will help anyone. In, in, in any area of, of, uh, professional, uh, professional work. So that's one of the, that's one of the recommendations that I would do. Uh, the second one, uh, recommendation, um, is, um, you know, uh, related to, to Mexico and, and those companies that are, um, interested in doing business in Mexico or just maybe just considering maybe another location, but they're not sure where to go. Um, there are many organizations in the United States that uh, are composed by Mexican businessmen or Latino businessmen. And uh, I think that uh, 
companies don't really make uh, good use of those organizations. Um, even the Mexican-American Chamber of Commerce in the United States, they, they do a fantastic job of answering questions um, and, uh, you know, paint a more accurate perspective of what Mexico can offer, what is good at, what is not good at. Uh, and many of these people, you know, speak of uh, by personal experience. Many of these members of these chambers of commerce or, or these business associations are actually businessmen who uh, are doing business in Mexico or, or have done business in Mexico and the United States. And, and they are, I guess, the best reference. But I, I rarely see companies reaching out to any of these organizations for their opinion or, or guidance or, or just simply to ask, ask them questions. So if any of your audience uh, is in the process of considering another location or, or is just even just interested about getting a more accurate uh, picture of what Mexico is today, uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, I am a member of one of those organizations. And I can tell you that everyone, uh, every of those organizations that I've met, uh, we are more than happy to receive anyone and answer any questions. It is by no way a burden to any of these organizations or any of their members to sit down with anyone who's interested about, you know, just talk about Mexico. And, um, but we, we rarely get those requests. So, uh, and it's maybe because we, we don't advertise it, but if you have any questions or you want to even know more about uh, doing business in Mexico, reach out. Uh, and we're present in almost in any major city in the United States. So, you know, just do a Google search for Mexican businessmen associations or, or Mexican-American business associations and reach out to any of them. I'm sure they'll be happy to sit down and... Uh, have a you know a, a, a q a session with anyone who approaches them Hector, on that note you said you're a member of one such association can you give us the name of that association so we can include that yes absolutely the name is is the aem uh, in spanish is asociación de empresarios mexicanos you can find them as aemusa.org and it's a national organization uh, composed by Mexican businessmen who live in the U.S. and do business across the border. It's a national association, but there are chapters. I think there's about uh, 22 chapters. Don't don't quote me on that. Uh, I'm not up to the latest numbers. But there are chapters in almost any major city in the United States. And uh, uh, they... Our main goal is to actually promote uh, Mexico as a uh, business uh, environment and work with anyone who wants to do business there. Thank you for that. Jonathan, what about you? Any recommendations? Yes, I finally finished Disunited Nations, which was Peter Zion's latest book that came out early in 2020. And I have a big crush on Peter Zion. It's an intellectual crush, although he's not a bad looking dude. Uh, <laughs> But this is his his latest book, and he's a geopolitician, geopoliticist. He, he looks at the way the world is put together through the lens of geography, how we got to where we are, largely based on, on geographic parameters, on where countries are situated. And so I'm going to read through some of the countries that he hits on this time. The title Disunited Nations comes from the 
concept that the U.S. is pulling back more from global governance that it established post-World War II. And it's going to allow other countries in the regions to uh, to exert their influence. And so, uh, for instance, he in his prior book, he hit a lot on China. This time he has a chapter on Japan. So he hits on Japan, Russia, Germany, France, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. And so these are all countries that are either growing in prominence or will be uh, slightly shrinking in prominence in favor of another one. For instance, the Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran competition. And then you have Turkey stepping in, which he says is going to be the superpower in that region of the world in, in the coming decades. So uh, it's as always, it's it's a super fun read. I listened to the Audible version. It's also a lot of fun. He, he only read his first book. Yeah, someone else reads this book, but it is well worth your time. I think our audience members are all big geopolitical nuts anyway, so I don't have to preach on that. But it's, uh, you know, if you're interested in any of these countries, uh, you know, even uh, I was fascinated by the history of, uh, of Argentina and Brazil and how their, uh, how their uh, development post-colonial era uh, has grown. So a lot of interesting facts. I'll probably go back and listen to it again, uh, just to solidify more things to my brain, but I highly recommend it. It is called Disunited Nations by Peter Zion. Fred, what about you? My recommendation today is um, a little a little controversial. Most of our listeners probably know there are still very serious questions out there regarding the origins of COVID. Nobody knows. That's That's the bottom line at the moment. Nobody really knows how the virus originated. Unfortunately, that topic, that search for the uh, the roots of the pandemic has been mired in, in a lot of political controversy. Uh, obviously, there are the efforts on the part of the, the Chinese authorities to control the narrative as to how it started. Uh, and even here in the United States and elsewhere in the world, there are differing views. Unfortunately, any suggestion that the origins of COVID might lie anywhere other than in, in a process of, of natural development. Any, any suggestion that the, the labs that, are, that exist in the city of Wuhan might have had a part in all of this. There are many voices, including respected voices in the press and elsewhere, that are quick to discount that as a sort of reflexive anti-China view. However, I read what I find to be a, a rather compelling article, not in support of the idea that, that the virus originated at the lab, but rather in support of the view that we don't know and we need to keep an open mind with regard to this. It's uh, an article called The Origin of COVID, the People or Nature Open Pandora's Box at Wuhan, written by Nicholas Wade. I'm reading his bio right off the the article uh, is a science writer, editor, and author who has worked on the staff of Nature, Science, and for many years, the New York Times. This was published in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. We'll be providing a link, of course. But I thought it, it laid out the case very convincingly for the proposition that we need to keep an open mind and cannot just go ahead and say that there is no way that this came out of, of a lab in, in Wuhan. I'm not a science guy, and the level of science in this article is is dumbed down, still a little bit <laughs> uh, too much for me. But I, but 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 even putting that aside, I think some of the arguments in support of of keeping an open mind, if you will, I think are within reach of of anyone. So again, uh, the origin of COVID, the people or nature open Pandora's box at Wuhan. 
was published on May the 5th in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And the author, once again, is Nicholas Wade. So thank you, Hector, for, for your recommendation. Thank you, Jonathan, as well. And thank you, Hector, for coming on the podcast. Really, really enjoyed the, the conversation. We look forward to having you back on before too long. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time and the opportunity to you know, share my experience, share a little bit more knowledge about my country. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Hope to participate in a future time as well. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.